Atamari, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, Tuesday, the 31st of January. Kornathan Rarari, Aho. Coming up, two polls with very similar results. Why do voters now prefer Chris Hipkins over Chris Luxon? Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis is with us. Floodwaters almost up to the roof. A naked man in Auckland saves his belongings by stuffing them in a ceiling cavity. And a 77-year-old pensioner called her housing provider for help when Friday's floods. First, they sent a plumber... And then this happened. They see this water coming through. I can't cope with it. And they said, jump on your bed. By this time, the whole garden was covered in water like a lake. It was coming up really fast. And I said, we need people to help us. Welcome to First Up. I am Nathan Rarere. We will be uh, keeping an eye on any weather warning that pops up. Uh, so we will... See? There we are. That's my commitment to it. I forgot to turn the sound off on my computer. There we go. And uh, we'll bring you that. See? That's how committed we are uh, as soon as it comes through. But we begin this morning in the United Kingdom uh, with a true industry professional, Henry Riley, who won't have his uh, notifications uh, turned on. But he's joining us right now in London. Kia ora, Henry. How are you? Kiora, I've just silenced all of my devices, so it doesn't happen. <laughs> what a pro. People are tuning in going, hey, Nathan, gee, he knows how to work things. Hey, tell me this, uh, Boris Johnson is in the headlines again, and this was an interesting story. He says he was threatened by Vladimir Putin during a phone call in the lead-up to the invasion of Ukraine. Tell us, uh, expand on that. Yes, he was speaking ahead of a BBC documentary about the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Of course, that's approaching one year in actually a matter of days, isn't it? A couple of weeks will mark one year since the start of the war. And Boris Johnson being interviewed on that and sort of let's slip this conversation. If you hear what Boris Johnson says, I have to say it certainly doesn't seem planned. He sort of let's slip this conversation that he had with Vladimir Putin. I mean, an extraordinary phone call. That's the word Boris Johnson uses to describe it as well. Uh, he's speaking with Vladimir Putin, who says it would only take a minute to kill him uh, at one point. He said uh, he essentially warned that Vladimir Vladimir Putin, that any war would be an utter catastrophe. And then Boris Johnson saying that in this phone call with Vladimir Putin, he essentially said, you know, he could strike a missile that would kill him in a minute. Now, it's important to say the Kremlin have fully denied this. They've said it's so untrue that, in fact, it is a lie. Uh, that's according to a Kremlin spokesperson. They've said that you, this is as a part of a conversation where Boris Johnson was saying to Mr. Putin that invading Ukraine would lead to Western sanctions, more NATO troops on Russia borders. So it sounded like, sound like a pretty hostile, frosty phone call as it was. And indeed, Boris Johnson says at one point, he said, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but with a missile, it would only take a minute or something like that. So seemingly a, a war of words, a very serious war of words between Boris Johnson when he was prime minister and Vladimir Putin. That's going to be quite chilling for everybody living in your country to think that, you know, what if what if it hadn't gone well at the end of that uh, conversation? We've seen uh, what Putin's done to the neighbours. Wow. Uh, let's yep. have a look. So, so uh, Rishi Sunak sacked uh, Nahim Zahawi, and, and, you know, the, the fallout from that is still being felt. The Prime Minister now having to defend his handling of the case in, in the last few hours. Why and how so? 
So he's been criticised by opposition parties for being too slow to do it, essentially. So Labour, that are our main opposition, have said as soon as there were questions about his tax status, he should have been suspended. And then if he was proven to be not guilty, then essentially he could be reinstated as the party chairman. The Conservatives and Rishi Sunak decided against that. They decided that he would stay in post until the investigation has concluded, which I have to say is normally the protocol. For example, our Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab, is currently being investigated over bullying allegations. Nadim Zahawi was investigated over his tax affairs. He stayed in position. But Rishi Sunak facing that criticism from opposition parties who say he should have acted uh, sooner than he did. And indeed, it's been a distraction for Rishi Sunak. He was out in Darlington today in, in in the north of the UK, putting this commitment about he wants to reform the NHS, he wants more ambulances, more doctors. And it was completely overshadowed, not least by the journalists in the room who only wanted to ask him about Nadim Zahawi. He acted yesterday because an investigation by his independent advisor, Solori Magnus, found that Zahawi had breached the ministerial code. That's why Rishi Sunak decided to sack him yesterday. As soon as that investigation came in, he made the decision to sack him. And now opposition parties want him to go further. The Liberal Democrats, which are sort of our third party in the UK, are saying if he's been found to have breached the tax law, then he should no longer be a Conservative MP. So there's a row about whether he should have the whip now taken away from him so he shouldn't sit as a Conservative and indeed Labour critical of the Prime Minister's actions right from the very start. So the next cha- the next question is going to be who becomes the next Conservative Party chairman. They're not going to rush it, I'm told. They're going to wait a few days and make sure they have a safe pair of hands preferably someone who has no dealings with HMRC or any sort of allegations behind them. They're looking for a squeaky clean candidate. Ari Redknapp. Um, in 2017, <laughs> you know, the world looked on in horror there at that, at that uh, green, Greenfield disaster. I see developers have been told to fix unsafe buildings as soon as possible in the wake of that, which is a good thing. But what happens if they don't? Well, then they're told they'll face significant consequences. And indeed, just to link this with the Nadim Zahawi story, Nathan, this is exactly a classic example of the government who've actually got something very good to say on housing. And it's been completely overshadowed by the Nadim Zahawi situation. This is an extremely popular policy. It polls very well. But indeed, many people haven't actually heard about it because journalists have been too focused on the ongoings with the former chairman of the Conservative Party who we spoke about earlier. Essentially, what today means, Michael Gove, the housing secretary, he's saying he's given housing developers an ultimatum. So they have to make sure they commit to repairing unsafe buildings from the past 30 years or instead... They'll be banned from operating within the market. There's no sort of leniency from the housing secretary here. It's very black or white. He's pointed to the Grenfell Tower tragedy, which you pointed out last year marked five years since that awful tragedy, which took place in 2017. It killed 72 people. Indeed, we've had an inquiry into that, which has come out recently. But what the housing secretary is seeking to do here is to make sure that developers in particular do not profit from unsafe buildings. And instead, what he calls a moral duty, making sure they have that duty, they do the right thing, they pay for the repair. And if not, he's made it perfectly clear they won't be able to operate in the same way they have been doing so for many years. Henry, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Sir Henry Riley, out of the UK. It's 12 past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Uh, we're just actually we're a bit keen for your feedback. Those of you up north that have got a whole lot of rain coming, uh, particularly around Coromandel Bay, plenty Northland, Auckland as well. Uh, how have you got yourself prepared? Have you, you 
come up with some sandbags or something like that. And then also uh, in the South Island, you've got a heat wave headed your way, and it sounds pretty full on. So uh, let us know how. Uh, you, have any of you done the trick where you get the what do you call it the the ice the tray of ice, and then you have the fan blowing over the top, and it's kind of like you know it's a cheap aircon. It's a good, good way to do it. Did it lots when I was flatting. Well, uh, let's hear, this is a sad news. A suicide bomber has attacked a mosque in the Pakistani city of Peshawar. Authorities say that at least 32 people have been killed. The BBC's Tarub Asker has more. Well, rescue operation is still going on because the intensity of blast was quite high and there was a lot of damage. You can clearly see it through videos and pictures. And still, uh, uh, rescue operation, the people who are doing a rescue operation, they're assuming that there, there, are, there are people who are still stuck under the rubble because when this blast happened, uh, the, uh, the roof of the mosque actually collapsed. And uh, right, uh, you know, uh, before 15 minutes, they actually was able to successfully take out two people alive under the rubble and uh, they have also taken out uh, six more dead bodies uh, that were stuck under the rubble rescue operation people who are uh, who said that you know uh, we are expecting more people are still stuck under the uh, rubble so we are doing it very sensitively and how uh, very carefully so that we can uh, we are actually trying to save more people and can uh, you know successfully take out more people alive uh, mm. from the site it's understood that the local police force was the target well uh, the, the the blast where it happened is uh, is the mosque where it actually is located in the police lines so yes uh, there the the reports that are coming in that is about the fact that there were more police personals who actually got killed in this uh, blast. So up till now, 32 people have been died, but that mosque uh, at the time of prayer, there were more than 400 people who were uh, present in this uh, mosque. And uh, according to eyewitness, uh, he said that, you know, uh, when we just ent- uh, when I entered into the mosque and there was initial time when actually prayer started, uh, the blast happened and the intensity was so high that I was uh, I was, um, I, I really Really didn't understand that what had happened so uh, you know you can just see that you know and not only this uh, there are a lot of other important buildings that are sur- that are around that uh, mosque so people uh, from those buildings and surroundings also you know were joining in the uh, uh, Zohar prayer that was happening in the mosque the Pakistan Taliban is suspected of being behind the attack there's a new wave of terrorist attacks that is happening in Pakistan, in few areas of Pakistan, like in KPK, Balochistan. And yet it is not clear because uh, the central people from the TTP, uh, so far, they have not, uh, you know, uh, taken a responsibility officially. But there are reports coming in that uh, they might be responsible for that because uh, their group members, they're actually sharing photos and pictures of the suicide bomber on social media and claiming that this is a revenge uh, from the fact that, you know, they have recently uh, between the fights, their leader, Khalid uh, Khorasani, he he got killed. So, uh, yes, there are series of attacks that has been happening in last few weeks. But this is one of a very major attack that happened in one of... uh, uh, the major city, actually a capital of uh, KPK. That was Tarub Ashka from the BBC. It is quarter past five, we'll call it here, just a little bit past that here on uh, First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarare. Time now to hear from our correspondent in Japan, Chris Gilbert. When I spoke to him, he started by telling me about two tourists who lost their lives in an avalanche. 
So it's the first season for travelers to come back to Japan. Of course, so famous for its powder snow here. You know, it gets those Arctic winds coming down. It gets the, the really cold temperatures up in Hokkaido. It's got the really, really soft snow. And, you know, the, the skiers and the snowboarders of the world have been jogging up and down on the spot for three years to get back at it. And they're back with a vengeance. But there are risks. And one of the risks is that, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but a big news last week was that we had a huge storm that slam into all of Asia. Before this big snow dump, there wasn't a lot of snow. So all the, the snow on the mountain became hard, it became firm. What happens when you have a lot of soft new snow on a lot of hard old snow? Well, it becomes slippery. And uh, over the weekend, tragically, uh, Japan saw two or three avalanches in different resorts around the country. And uh, tragically, there were a couple of people that got caught, one from Austria, one from America, at the very famous resort of Hakuba. There was an avalanche that was triggered by some people at the top. Three people uh, were in the path of it. One managed to get out of the way. Two didn't. It was part of a, a trend over the weekend of avalanches elsewhere as people are really hungry and excited to get out into the backcountry and enjoy Japan snowboarding and skiing again. The ski patrol here does have a reputation for being, as they say in Japanese, quite majime. What that means is like very serious and very earnest, and they don't have much of a sense of humor. They don't really let you ski um, out of bounds that much or in the trees that much. And so the attitude against that has been that foreign travelers have been like, ah, oh, just relax, mate, and they jump the fence and they go down themselves. And right. it's a timely reminder, no matter how excited we are to get the uh, the Japao again to take all precautions uh, because, you know, it, as as this weekend has shown, you know, uh, tragic accidents can happen all too easily. Yeah, it is. That's, that's horrible news. That's very, very sad. Let, let's go to something which, which will bring great joy to people's hearts. Uh, the Japanese government to once again allow loud cheering full attendance at concerts, sports and events and so forth. That's brilliant. It is brilliant. So Japan never had a lockdown, right? It just had a whole bunch of behavioral guidelines like please don't talk at the izakaya, please avoid eye contact at all costs. I don't know, just a whole bunch of things you're meant to do, social manner sorts of things. Uh, One of them was no cheering, shouting or yelling or other exclamations at sports games or concerts because obviously it could lead to viral spread. And I'll never forget the image. It's a YouTube video. You can still go find it of uh, two Tokyo bureaucrats. And they want this is in 2020, I think. And they wanted to show how to safely ride the roller coasters at the Fuji Q amusement park, which has enormous roller coasters. And it's just like a dash cam sort of thing, but facing these two execs in suits with their ties flapping over their shoulders, just looking grimly at the camera. And the subtitle just says, Please scream inside your heart. Um, so, <laughs> it is an amazing video. Um, if you can find it, I highly recommend to everyone just to watch this for the spectacle of it alone. But effectively, fun was cancelled. I mean, anyone remember joy? Remember laughter? It, it hasn't existed here for, for three years. And also, I'm reminded of that video from New Zealand at the end of the first lockdown in 2020. The the second the lockdown lifted, it ticked over. There's that CTT uh, TV footage of those dudes in that bar jumping up and down and hugging. Can't do that here. You can't jump and cheer here. You have to jump and cheer inside your hearts. Oh. But now, finally, it's it's coming full circle, and the last restrictions are lifting. The government apparently is going to let you quote cheer loudly at sporting matches again. Up until now. If you wanted to cheer at a sporting match or if you wanted people to be able to cheer at your sporting match, you had to have 50% capacity so people could be spaced 
and cheer without getting their, um, I don't know, like mouth juices on each other and stuff. <laughs> and in fact, last season, some soccer team was fined $240,000 New Zealand dollars by the administrators for failing to sufficiently discourage cheering by their fans. <laughs> I mean, what sports team wants to tell their fans to pipe down, yes. you know? Tell me that. I don't know. Guys, um, play less exciting. Just pass it along the back line. No one score goals. No one score goals. Maybe that was it. Yeah, just they don't, don't do anything draws. exciting. Yeah. yeah, don't get people excited, please. The government, it seems, is ready to announce it's removing these remaining regulations. Everyone can come in. They can come and clap and cheer and hoop and holler again. But it is saying, again, some mixed messages from Japan, as always. Uh, if you're going to do that, can you like, can you keep your masks on, though, if you're going to do so? Which is, like, last week they were saying, hey, guys, please take your masks off. And now they're saying, oh, you can cheer, but maybe keep your masks on. But regardless, I am going to be running through the streets, Jimmy Stewart, and It's a Wonderful Lifestyle, just hooting and hollering and whooping as loudly as I can the day that these restrictions are dropped because I personally am tired of simply screaming in my heart. Same. That's Chris Gilbert in Tokyo. 21 past five here. I'm Nathan Rarere at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, flood stories. Uh, one naked Aucklander saved his belongings by stuffing them in a ceiling cavity, plus the Battle of the Chrises. National's Nicola Willis gives us her verdict on the latest political poll and the Auckland floods. Time now to head to Whanganui with our local democracy reporting programme, and it's always a pleasure to get to say good morning to Moana Ellis. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, Nathan. I'm good. Morena. Hey, so tell us about this new name for an old town and how did that go down? Yeah, well, this is a, a little settlement 22 kilometres northwest of Wanganui on State Highway 3. You, you drive past it, you know, drive through it, you'll blink and you'll miss it. It's a small farming community. There's a kindergarten, um, a little church, a town hall, and a beautiful marae called Pākaraka Pā. The area was named by Māori for the abundance of karaka trees. But um, in 1870, the settlers in the area named the township Maxwell Town. Um, Now, George Maxwell was a Scotsman who, in the 1860s, helped found the Kaiwi Yeomanry Cavalry Volunteers, a, a settler militia. And in 1868, that militia attacked attacked a group of unarmed Māori children with with sabres um, at a place called, well, near Handley's Woolshed on the Nukumaru Flats. And in that attack, two of the tamariki, who were all aged between 6 and 12, were killed. Now, George Maxwell himself was killed two years later in 1870, and soon after his death, the area was named Maxwell Town after him. Mm-hmm. And then in, in 1927, uh, the name changed to Maxwell. So as you can imagine, the hapu in that area, Ngāti Maika, have had to live with um, what is a painful reminder for them of that atrocity, the painful association of the name Maxwell with the massacre of those children. And so... A few years ago, some years ago, they teamed up with their iwi, Ngāruru, Ngāruru Kitai, and uh, Wanganui District Council to change the name of the settlement from Maxwell back to what they've known it as, uh, Pākaraka. Uh, they went through the New Zealand Geographic Board and it went through in February last year. 
And um, a little while ago, I was at Pākarakapā with hapu iwi in the community when they uh, came together to bless and and finally install the new name signs about a year later. Um, and they had, you know, it was a really beautiful day. They had photos of ancestors out in front of the Warepuni, uh, including one Karoa, who was one of the children who were at who, who survived the incident at Handley's Woolshed, uh, although he lost several fingers to a bayonet um, and to a sabre. So I spoke to one of the Komatua there, a Hina, who's worked for many years to have the name reinstated. And he says that remembering the past is, um, is going to remain really important for Ngāti Maika so that they can let the young people know what happened back there and um, what he said to me was that you can't change history, but you can sort of redress, help to redress what was done by changing the name of the area back to Pākaraka. Yeah. Um, what, a, what, a, what a heart-wrenching story to hear about that. You know, I mean, he, he gets remembered and not the poor children uh, that, that were killed uh, there in there. So, uh, Moana Alice, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I might try and learn more about that, actually. I didn't know I'm from the other side of the island, so uh, it'll be interesting to find out. But what a uh, sad, sad thing. I know that the uh, new sign didn't go over well. since Some locals vandalised it, but hopefully they'll understand the story behind it. It's 29 past five. <laughs> Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the 31st of January. Uh, let's have a look at birthdays. It was the birthday in 1919 of Jackie Robinson. If you haven't heard of Jackie Robinson, the first African-American player to play Major League Baseball in the modern era with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, it's, it's held on to quite heavily. The Dodgers now live in Los Angeles, but when you uh, buy any of their merchandise, quite often there's a little 42 uh, that's up in it. And that is the number that Jackie uh, Robinson wore. And actually, uh, once a season, the entire league, every single player in the league, wears his number, number 42. That was Jackie Robinson's birthday in 1919. Uh, who's with us right now and celebrating birthdays? Justin Timberlake, 42 years old already. He seems like he should be older, but he's 42. There you go. Minnie Driver is 53 years old. Apparently she was born in London, London but raised in Barbados till the age of seven. Uh, Minnie Driver, she's 53. And Johnny Rotten, you know, he was born John Joseph Lydon in London 67 years ago. Uh, on this day in 2015, 17-year-old Lydia Ko became the youngest golfer in men's or women's golf history to be ranked number one in the world. All right. Uh, on this day in 1930, Richard Drew, who was a young engineer at 3M, invents scotch tape. And the idea was, it was it, he wanted something that was a moisture-proof way for grocers and bakers to seal packages. Uh, the tape uh, helped people's make-do uh, attitude during the Great Depression, and they made simple repairs to their household using it, and that was really where it took off. And on this day in 2020, tomorrow then, the United Kingdom formally left the European Union, and that was more than three years after the country had voted for Brexit. Joining us now from our business team is Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. Kia ora to you, Nathan. 
Okie dokie. Um, yes, uh, the Aucklanders uh, cutting up a lot. Yesterday I just gave up on the dehumidifier and went, nah, and got in there with the leather and they just cut up the carpet and threw it outside. There was nothing there. <laughs> Tell us about the, the economic cost of the disaster. I'm just going with a rug. Well, what you're doing is, is exactly uh, you know, an example of economic activity. Mm. It's, a, it's an issue of swings and roundabouts in these sort of circumstances. There's the immediate losses, uh, many of which will be insured, but uh, you know, a fair proportion may not be. You have the activity of cleaning things out. So there's that hit to the economy. Businesses are shut, having to recover. They're losing sales. Uh, production goes down. Um, people you know, having to uh, reclad their houses uh, and the like. But then you get the rebound. And that's where you have you know, the, the new carpets, uh, the new appliances, painting the floors, the carpets, the works. So they should sort of balance each other out you know, in the big picture of things. But remembering uh, you get that in cash injection from the insurance uh, payments, uh, and that will boost things. Uh, but then we're more than likely to see an increase in prices, shortages uh, and supply disruptions. That could be inflationary. Um, although we've had around... Uh, Ten to 12,000 claims already. We have to figure that's going to be uh, a lot more. Interestingly, after the Christchurch earthquakes, uh, the insurance claim income uh, was a boost for the economy for quite some years. Uh, and so was uh, the reconstruction. And as we remember, strong economic activity was driven by a lot of the Christchurch rebuild. Um, and we'll have this to a, a lesser extent for uh, these floods. We've got to figure uh, it's going to take some time before it's obvious. Uh, and we need to think big picture that you know, down the other end of the country, it's actually quite dry, and we may even see an economic hit from from drought in some particular areas. So uh, we'll we'll wait and see on this one. Somebody's done a back of the envelope calculation, suggesting that it could be four five hundred billion dollars worth. Uh, billion? Dam- uh, sorry, million. Oh, few. Mi- God, I was just checking your hearing right. there. Yeah, right. All right, uh, four or five hundred million yeah. um, a hit to the economy. Um, that might be generous. That might be um, you know, a, a vast understatement. We'll wait and see on this one. But yeah. uh, there will be a hit. We have, to, we have to be assured of that. And the interesting thing is uh, calls from businesses saying, time for the government to step up and help us again and i'm just thinking again yeah it's always it's always that perennial question isn't it yeah cheers hey thank you very much uh, giles you can hear more from the business team this morning on morning report well the first two political polls since chris hipkins took over as prime minister show labor nudging ahead the one news Cantar public poll has labor on 38 percent which is up five percentage points national down one uh, to 37 that's labor's best result in the poll since january last year the news hub read research poll also released last night has labor on 38 up 5.7 national down 4.1 to 37 6.6. Chris Hipkins is uh, has also pushed ahead of Christopher Luxon as preferred Prime Minister in both polls. So why do those uh, polled prefer Chris Hipkins? I put that to National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. We've always said the polls are going to come up and down and we are expecting a very close election fight. And that's what those polls show. I think the job for National remains the same. We need to present our plans to New Zealanders to address the issues they're so worried about, you know, the cost of living, 
incomes, law and order, education and health services. And we're really looking forward to doing that this year and to earning more support. Right. Um, you know, because a couple of weeks ago, I think we spoke about a poll. It kind of felt like, you know, it kind of felt like it was a bit of imagine if you lose it from here. Like it seemed like National was so in control. So when you say communicating those ideas, do you have a look and go, maybe we're not being clear enough or succinct enough? Or, or what do you look at and what do you think you could improve to, to let people know what you would like to do? I think people just want to hear more from us, and that's the opportunity we have this year. Obviously, since we last spoke, there has been a change in Prime Minister. I think New Zealanders are probably giving him the benefit of the doubt for now. Our job is to put our positions forward, and I'm confident that actually New Zealanders will judge not just on who's talking the talk, but who can really deliver, and we know that our national team can do that. So I'm looking forward to talking more about our plans and ideas this year. Yeah, I mean, look, extreme weather hitting hitting the country. I know down south, uh, particularly, I think Christchurch has got a, a pretty heavy heat wave on the way. But the Auckland floods, uh, and I know there's flooding around other parts of the North Island too, pretty major. Uh, when you have a look at, at what's happened, uh, tell me, what would National be doing that Chris Hipkins hasn't so far? First, can I just say that they have been devastating the floods and my heart goes out to all of those people who have been impacted. People who've lost loved ones, people who've lost their homes, lost their possessions, lost pets, had their businesses destroyed. And so there is a huge amount of hardship happening in Auckland right now. And National really feels for all affected. I think what's important in a crisis like this is that we see regular communication. It's absolutely unhelpful for me to be criticising any other politician right now. This is actually a time where we need to work together to get things done for the people in Auckland. And we've had our members of parliament and the Auckland electorates out on the ground doing that in their communities. And equally, I've seen that Labour MPs are doing the, the same. And that's what you'd expect. People should be working together to get help to those who need it and make sure that we're fixing things as fast as we can. Yeah. You know, that, that uh, Friday when it happened, uh, a lot of a lot of scared people in Auckland, a lot of, a lot of mad people too. Uh, Mr Luxon called out Wayne Brown on Friday for the council's slow response. I think he used words that, that a lot of Aucklanders uh, would have liked to have used, but they were using one, different ones privately. Now, let, let's talk about Wayne Brown. With that kind of response, he's got a huge responsibility for a massive city here, a large financial engine for the country. Does he need to dis, uh, resign? As I've said, I don't think it's helpful right now for me to put the boot in to any individual politician. But what's been very clear is that many Aucklanders were frustrated on Friday night with the lack of communications they received about what was happening, what they needed to do, where there were support services available and what steps were taken by the authorities. I think that failure of communication is a big problem. I'm pleased that there is going to be a review of exactly what went wrong because I know a lot of Aucklanders have felt very let down. Would you, you know, with your finance hat on, do you have any idea how much a cleanup like this costs? Well, obviously, that will need to be assessed by experts, but I do expect, Nathan, that it will go into the hundreds of millions. And that sounds huge, but when you account for all of the homes that have been wrecked, all of the possessions, the cars, the businesses, the cost and toll will be very significant. So so what should the government's priority be there for Auckland to, to get the city back on its feet? 
Well, look, the priority has to be allowing people to move back into their homes, being able to move around on the roads so that they can get to and from work, giving the assistance needed so that businesses can open their doors. And I think following today's news, a lot of people will be wanting to see their kids back to school. So making sure that critical infrastructure is in place so people can safely go about their daily lives must be the priority. Yeah, I mean, and the, the floods, it's interesting you mentioned the infrastructure there. I mean, it did really lay bare the, the inadequacy of Auckland's infrastructure. I mean, we around us, we had all sorts of, uh, you know, stormwater drains just blowing the top off them as they went. How would National tackle this? I think there was an extraordinary amount of water. So I think there would have been a strain on infrastructure no matter what, given mm. that, given the extraordinary amount of water. What this is a very salient reminder of, though, is that climate change is happening. And actually, as a country, we are going to see more of these extreme weather events. And so we need to invest in infrastructure that makes our cities and our towns more resilient so that they can cope with more water and more extreme weather. And National sees a very strong case for that sort of infrastructure investment. Now, how we structure that is where the political debate lies. We don't think uh, that having the four mega entities running water services with all local control and authority removed makes sense. That's the government's Three Waters proposal. We would like to see a different approach that gives local communities more control, but the case for infrastructure investment is very strong. One of the most striking images, and it was bouncing around on um, uh, social media a lot, was uh, during the flood was a National Party billboard vowing to repeal three waters, surrounded by flood water. I mean, people said, surely this you know, demonstrates precisely why we need three waters? Well, I don't think that these floods prove that taking local control and ownership of water assets away would improve things. I don't think these floods prove that the proposed governance structure for Three Waters would be any better. As I say, National's argument hasn't been about whether or not we should be investing in water infrastructure. Of course we should be, and we will need to be prepared for more flooding in the future as climate change comes to us and and strengthens. But we don't think that Three Waters is the the right way, and we do not see any evidence that it would have prevented the events you saw on Friday. Well, Nicola Willis, thank you very much for being here with us again this week. Let's uh, hope when we return next week, where you know the weather's dried up a bit there for the uh, for the north, and it's got a little cooler for the south. <laughs> I tell you, I'm uh, I'm standing with a lot of people around the rest of the country who Auckland, we just hope it stays a bit drier for you. We really want that rain to abate. We are all thinking of you across the country and we're wishing you as much sunshine as possible. That's Nicola Willis, Deputy Leader of National. We had a message in during that. Nicola Willis is so impressive. National would do better to have her leading, not just fixing up Christopher Luxon's burbles. for your feedback. It is uh, 18 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So still to come between now and the end of the programme, you'll hear about a naked man saving his belongings by stuffing them into a ceiling cavity as floodwaters rise and a 77-year-old pensioner who called her housing provider for help in Friday's floods and received two terrible pieces of support. The professionals of Morning Report are here after six. Leading the charge this morning is Kim Hill. Kia ora. Kim, how are you? What's Kia ora, Nathan. How are you? Just, I'm good. <laughs> I'm just laughing. You've got to laugh, right? About Wayne Brown's text to his mates on Friday. 
Can't play tennis, have to deal with media drongos about the flooding. Oh, it's horrible. Well, you know, they might have had the court booked. Yeah, they might I know. have got new socks. You don't know. You know, might have new, a new. But when you open a, a, that little tin of tennis balls, it's a beautiful sound. It's he might a beautiful sound. Beautiful yeah. smell. Yeah. And well, here we are, the media drongos, having to deal with the weather, of course. Auckland struggling with the flooding now, facing more rain. Northland Coromandel stricken too. So while we are covering the immediate crisis, lots of information. We'll also talk to the Ministry of Education about the controversial instruction for all schools to close until mm. February the seventh. We'll also be looking at how this kind of thing can be ameliorated or avoided in the future, the way we build stormwater infrastructure. And, of course, in other news, the latest political polls, which are, it seems, a vote of confidence in new Labour leader and Prime Minister Chris Hipkins. All coming up in Morning Report, Nathan. Wonderful. Thank you for it. You're one of my favourite drongos. Oh, thank, thank you, Kim. you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, Auckland has had almost eight times its normal January rainfall this month with more rain overnight and Met Service issuing a heavy rain warning for the region for the next 24 hours. Awesome. A low-lying area in the central Auckland suburb of Grey Lynn is in tatters following last Friday night's flooding. Uh, reporter Leonard Powell spoke to David Playle, who described swimming around naked as floodwaters rose rapidly, forcing him to stuff anything that he could to save into, the, into his flat's ceiling cavity. Near the northern end of Greyland Park, residents are piling rubbish on the footpath as they rummage through their belongings to see what can be saved and what needs to go. The quaint, affluent suburb dips and rises across several hills and valleys, and its low-lying property stood no chance against Friday's unprecedented rain. I met David Playle at the top of his driveway on Coburn Street. He's in the process of removing everything from his flat, which is completely uninhabitable. He shows me where the water broke through. Where we are living is apparently it was a awa, it was a river, and it used to go from Cox's Bay all the way to Crummers. So every time there's a rain... I'm out here checking these drains, making sure they're not blocked, because if there's one blockage, the water doesn't fling. But if you can imagine when it's a lovely pouring down, lovely stream coming down here, not quite like hooker, comes down through here, watch out for all this, and then it comes through here, takes its rightful place as a, as a stream. David lifts up a trap door built into the deck, exposing a large stormwater drain. And then underneath here, it's the thing that I've been guarding over the last couple of years. It's the oh my God. main drain. Well, that's the awa. We, we've been the awa protectors. We've been protecting. So anytime there's sludge or stuff, we have to open this up, clear all the sludge. I've even got a thing over it. Look, made that myself. Bunnings, happy place. But if there's any blockages, this water just starts raising up here. So that's that. So if you come in... David walks me into their sodden flat and shows me the mark the water has left just below the ceiling. See the water line? So within minutes it was, um, you know, coming up as it normally does and then within three minutes it was up to our knees. In the house? In the house. So we were trying to retrieve as much as we could but as soon as the fridges and the bench, everything was floating, all the furniture, I just got up to about my chest we had to swim out of here. But thank God it happened not in the middle of the night, you know, because as you can see, there's a fault line around our whole fuddy. So the hour took its place back. As we stand in the empty house, 
David tells me how events unfolded after he left work early on Friday. I got home and started to do my thing, assess the area and honestly I got out of here with a pair of board shorts on but before that I was naked because I kept having to dry, shower, dry because I was very, I was cold, I was very cold because I kept going into this and this whole area was a pool. So I'm swimming in there, checking that drain underneath there and I'm checking that one. There was definitely a blockage and it was definitely different that day. Outside, the front lawn is strewn with all six flatmates' destroyed belongings. Soaked mattresses, busted appliances and piles of soggy clothes. David salvaged some of his partner's things by cramming them into a ceiling cavity, but only reached for one item of his own. I think I found what I wanted and it was just two photos, because I don't have the negatives and they're of my whanau, so... The community response has had a huge impact on David, who says he'd felt something coming before the flood. He says he even shared a message about this premonition on his neighbour's fence. Everyone's been amazing. It's like the old Aotearoa, the old New Zealand that I remember in the 80s. Everyone in the community was just absolutely outstanding. And if you're into a bit of superstition, I, I, I'm what you call a matakete, which is a visual... I'm a visionary, and I've been saying over the last two weeks there's something coming. Beginning of last week, I put up on the fence kiatau to rangimari, which literally means... And I didn't do the rest of the karakia, but it literally means bring peace to the people. Neither David Plale or his five flatmates have contents insurance. You know, rents are very high and they're now looking for a new whare to live. Um, they have a Give a Little fundraising page called Hakanoa, which is the street down that way, Hakanoa Underwater, to help get uh, back on their feet. It is 926. A North Shore pensioner says that she was told by her housing provider to jump on her bed to escape the floodwaters on Friday amid the city's deluge. Stephanie, who has asked us to only use her first name, said that after surrounding areas were flooded in March last year, she knew that the steady rain on Friday afternoon was much worse. The 77-year-old told our producer Jeremy Parkinson that she first called her housing provider Homaru from her Elma Court village in Milford around midday. I said, you've got to send somebody. Mm. But it... Because Wayne Brown hadn't declared emergency, basically, um, they're saying, oh, it's going to be all right. Then the next thing that comes, oh, it had already turned into a lake there. And so then it starts moving along here and lapping around the in, steps. In, uh, last year, so it came up uh, <laughs> about, uh, about, about four or five metres above the, the yeah. waterline where it is now. Yeah. And you can see something's been swept down there. Yeah, but a piece of I carpet mean, or something. Even in March, all of this was a lake. And so it, it got to uh, the point. When, when, did, how did it enter your property, uh, your house through? Well, the... it came through here, but as it got higher, it started to come through these fences as well. And at what point did you decide time to go? Well, I said to them, "Look, honestly, you've got to send somebody." And all they sent was a tradie. Because <laughs> I said the wood was flowing out from the retaining wall. What, what sort of tradie? Was he a plumber? Or a plumber. A, yeah. And he took one look and said, this is dangerous, we can't do anything. Yeah, what's a plumber going to do? <laughs> yes, he said, I'm going to get back to Helmaru and tell them. So then it's, I go inside and I said to, I rang them up and I said, there's water coming through. I can't cope with it. And they said, jump on your bed. And so that I was your fourth or fifth phone call? Yes. And I said, I said, 
we need someone to come and rescue us because by this time at the front the whole garden and everything was covered in water like a lake mm. and it was coming up really fast so she said jump on your bed and I said we need people to help us. Yeah. So uh, what we're looking at here is, I mean, this is, uh, uh, this is a, it would look like the water coming down uh, yeah. this way would be a normal yes. summer storm. It's come up maybe four or five metres further up than it oh, is now. Yeah. And where did it, it, it came into your house. Yeah. Uh, you don't mind showing no. me through? No. Okay. As long as the so all of these houses along, along the front here um, have been completely <laughs> flooded out as well. So yes. there's three or four uh, flats there. Yes. And piles of rubbish everywhere. Yeah. All rubbish now, it wasn't then. Some of it's already gone. Um, but you can see everything is yeah. drenched. And I mean drenched. Yes. I had, the first thing I could, I could do was to turn off... Uh, you can see what I was trying to get all my electrics and stuff off the floor. We're in your kitchen. We're at least seven metres above the water level, mm. uh, so that uh, the water's right come right to seven metres. That's it's actually mm. quite epic. Mm. By the time it was coming in at the front, the water was up to here. So almost chest, up to yeah. It was chest deep. And, uh, how, and how quickly did it get to chest deep? From say you're concerned it was maybe around your ankles. Did it did it come uh, up oh, quite quickly? In, in minutes. Mm minutes literally in minutes and they'd say you know the f i had to think about saving my life yes and it's not the first thing you think of is it no. you think of you think of your stuff yeah you don't think of yourself necessarily yes yeah and i i just left everything all i took was a bag and a jacket and i was in trackies and a t-shirt we went down the driveway to nile road which uh, to alma road the, the main driveway, and oh, I'll just mention one thing. There were fences going down the, the river, the, what was a raging river, literally. Yes. Yeah. There were fences, lots of them being ripped off. and But there, so there was wood floating around. Yeah, that's quite dangerous. Yeah. yeah, and anyway, we go through there. By this time, my car is covered in water. Then we, we got out down the driveway and that was quite a job. It took three guys because I'm so light, I was getting pulled away. We get out to Nile Road, and I mean to Alma Road, at, out there, and that was rushing like a, another river. And um, I couldn't, I was losing my footing, literally. And it took three guys, and one of them came here yesterday and said, we were worried that we were going to get swept off our feet as well. Mm. So it was really, really dangerous. And I mean, I think that we should have been evacuated earlier. After I got out of the flood, I'd lost, because of my injuries, I'd lost feeling in my hands and feet. Because I had to struggle, right? Gosh, we're, we're lucky to still have you with us. Yes. And how long did the water hang around for? Well, I got evacuated and it was yeah. still rising. And that was uh, what time on Friday? Well, I never got evacuated until about 7 o'clock because it was just lighting it and then it went dark quite quickly. Um, I mean, because you lose track of time, you're so stressed, you know. So he, the rescuer took me to the place and he gave me a pair of his trackies and his wife gave me a T-shirt. Do you have insurance? 
No, I didn't, because I didn't think that I needed it here. I had it, always had it, contents insurance before, my car insured. it. Uh, so you're looking at uh, paying for everything? Yes. Who should Who should pay? Well, I don't think we should, because, you know, we're because of our situation and most of us didn't have contents insurance, I know that, because we thought that it's, it's from a security point of view, you know, robbery and stuff like that. Oh, you're well back from the street. street yeah. yeah, and also it, there's lots of neighbours and people notice there's cars going around all the time, even at night. And you don't expect yeah. a gully like that yeah. to flood? Yes. No, and not certainly not the way it did. In response, Haumaru Housing said in a statement that its teams responded as quickly as possible as the situation evolved. It's uh, evolved, sorry. It's reviewing its call log and the actions taken at the time, but was confident that it had responded in an appropriate and timely manner, adding that its tenants' safety and well-being were Haumaru's chief priority. A lot of feedbacks coming this morning. Thank you very much for your time. Someone says Mayor Brown's incompetent. Um, Nats have no ability to provide better leadership, as if local authorities have the ability to sort out water. Look at Havelock North. Liz in Campbell's Bay took some sacks, went down and has been preparing for the waters uh, with your own sandbags. That's good. It says still feels a bit dad's army, but definitely reassuring and some peace of mind. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for it. And Murray says thank you for mentioning the disgusting racist behaviour and removal of the correct uh, Wanganui nomenclature. Let's see if anyone is held responsible. Lots of feedback coming in. Thank you so much for your time. Do you know what you can do? Download the podcast and listen to it all over again. But first... The Morning Report, which is next with Kim and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have a wonderful day. We're back in your ears, our Paul.